ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm Nick Grimm, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Beijing delivers a cruel blow to Chinese-Australian writer Yang Henjun, sentencing him to death with the chance of a lifetime in prison if he behaves. Also tonight, the need for speed. How can we get more fast charges out on the roads for electric vehicles? And at the Grammys, more glory for Taylor Swift, breaking Frank Sinatra's record for most albums of the year. All I want to do is keep doing this, so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I think the other really important thing with Taylor is that, yes, she's done so much so far, but she is still really young. She's just announced a new album. She's constantly producing more. First tonight, though, friends and family of the Chinese-Australian writer Yang Henjun have been devastated by news he's received a suspended death sentence in a Beijing court. Australian officials have been told the sentence could be reduced to life in prison if he maintains good behaviour over the next two years. A long-time critic of the Communist Party, Dr Yang, was detained at an airport in China in 2019. He was accused of spying and charged with national security offences. The pro-democracy blogger has always emphatically denied the accusations. This afternoon, Foreign Minister Penny Wong described his sentencing as harrowing news. The Australian government is appalled at this outcome. We will be communicating our response in the strongest terms. As a first step, I have directed my secretary to summon China's ambassador to Australia to express our objection. I want to acknowledge the acute distress that Dr Young and his family will be feeling today, coming after years of uncertainty. My thoughts, the Prime Minister's thoughts and I think all Australians' thoughts are with them. The sentence is yet another sign that the Chinese government is cracking down on political dissidents. For more, let's hear from one of Yong Hen-Joon's close supporters. Watson Mung is based in New York, and the last time he saw his friend was at the city's JFK airport in 2019 when Dr Young boarded a flight back to China, where he was immediately detained on arrival. And when we spoke a little earlier, Watson Mung told me the sentence handed down on his friend comes as a crushing blow. Yeah, it's a huge, huge impact. I know the family heard this, uh, you know, we're shocked. I am shocked. So basically that's I heard. So I'm still, you know, trying to learn why, you know, what's the detail, why he received such a harsh sentence. Tell me about your feelings on, on hearing this news. It's a, it's a kind of, I'll say, you know, I have been very good friends with him for so many years. After he was a kind of, a, you know, I would say kind of kidnapped in China, suddenly get not only sentenced, but such a long, very bad sentence. It's very sad. At the same time, I feel so disappointed by this Chinese government. I I have never been agree with the Chinese government, what they have been doing, but, you know, but this is beyond my expectation. Yang Jin is a very peaceful person. What he has been writing is so peaceful. He is very patient. He tries to understand what's going on in China. He has a confidence. The people will, you know, gradually become more civilized. I mean, the country more civilized. You know, Chinese government needs this person. 
Of course, the Chinese judicial system is a very opaque one for, for most people. Can you give me a sense of just how alarming it is that they've imposed a sentence like this? This is not just a technical matter. This is actually quite a very serious threat to his well-being, potentially. Yes, that's true. Two things. One thing is uh, uh, Hong Jun is Australian citizen. Uh, number two, he's Chinese dissident. So basically, you know, Chinese government is given a death sentence. Of, I, I, I believe that's the first time to give to a dissident. I look, uh, you know, think about the past three decades, any dissident not received such, uh, you know, death sentence. He's the only one so far, as far as I know. Do you draw any comfort from the fact that his death sentence could be converted to a term of life in prison eventually? Is is uh, is that reassure you at, to some small degree? Uh, yeah, I think there's a chance. But uh, still, you know, death sentence, sentence, death sentence is also a chance if you will, they keep the death sentence, right? So, you know, there's an option there. So basically, death sentence, you know, there are many cases, you know, turn to be termed uh, a, long, a life, lifetime sentence. But uh, it's also, you know, if you have a lifetime, lifetime sentence, you have more chance to reduce to 20 years, right? If you have death sentences, there are very little chance. That's, that's you know, it's a very bad sentence. What would be the implications of life in prison for your friend? Oh, it's, um, I, I think basically the, the government, uh, they don't want Hong Jun leave leave China for uh, life. Based on what he has been treated like, you know, he has a very bad problem in his kidney, right? He's not receiving the proper treatment. He needs a surgery, but I don't see they have the plan to, to uh, you know, to, to have that surgery. Basically, they no matter what, they want Hong Jun to die in the prison. So you're concerned that even if this sentence is commuted to life in prison, that's essentially a, a death sentence for your friend anyway? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Remind us about the last time you saw your friend. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, you, you know, when, when he left the, uh, New York, I drove him to JFK Airport. So uh, we talk about the risk to go back to China. We knew a lot of things happened in China. China is changing in a way we, you know, the most people don't don't like. He, I think he acknowledged this type of risk. He knew the risk. The last time is that I sent him to the airport. We hugged, said goodbye. I I I did have the bad feeling. So it's very very bad. Watson Mung, thanks very much for for talking to us at this time here on PM. Thank you. Thank thank you for your call. So. Watson Mung is a close friend of Young Henjun. Now for the latest in the Ben Robert Smith defamation case and the highly decorated former soldier has been in the federal court in Sydney today for the start of his appeal against a judge's decision last year that saw his action dismissed at the end of a long and costly trial. Mr Robert Smith sued newspapers The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times after they published allegations he'd been involved in the unlawful killings of four Afghan civilians. Mr Robert Smith strenuously denies those allegations. But the trial judge found it was more likely than not the allegations were true. Our reporter Samantha Donovan is following the appeal proceedings and we spoke a little earlier. Sam, what's Ben Robert Smith arguing in this case? 
Nick, Ben Robert-Smith and his lawyers are essentially arguing that the trial judge, Anthony Besanko, got it wrong, that he didn't explain well enough how he'd reached his conclusions, that he didn't explain sufficiently why he'd accepted the evidence of some witnesses over others to reach his decision to dismiss Mr Robert-Smith's case against the newspapers. Senior counsel Brett Walker is leading Mr Robert-Smith's legal team. You may recall he's the, the well-known Sydney Silk who successfully led Cardinal George Pell's High Court appeal against his conviction for child sexual abuse. Uh, and Mr Walker has put to the three judges hearing this appeal that while the trial judge may have been mindful of the seriousness of the allegations against Mr Robert Smith, his conclusions were at times speculative and not supported by the evidence. So has the court looked at any of the specific murder allegations in particular today? Yes, Brett Walker's been taking the three judges through the evidence of what happened at an Afghan compound known as Whiskey 108 back in April 2009. Uh, the newspapers and some soldiers in their evidence allege that after a raid on that compound, two Afghan men were pulled from a tunnel and in breach of the rules of engagement, one was machine gunned to death by Mr Robert Smith and the man's prosthetic leg souvenired by another soldier and later used as a drinking vessel by the Australians uh, and it's alleged the second man was executed by a junior soldier on the orders of Ben Robert Smith. Mr Robert Smith strongly denies those allegations. Brett Walker has told the appeal judges today there's a lot of contradictory evidence from soldiers about what happened at Whiskey 108 and he argued that Justice Basanko shouldn't have put aside some evidence without explaining why he did so. He said the evidence just isn't compelling enough to prove that the allegations are true and that the Defence Force's official reports of the Whiskey 108 raid are at odds with some of the evidence and he argued that those official reports are likely to be more accurate than the evidence given in court years after the event, given that the reports were prepared shortly after the raid in 2009. Sam, this has already been a very expensive case so far. Do we have any idea how much it's costing? Well, the reported estimates for the trial, Nick, 25 to $35 million. That's the costs for both sides. There have been quite lengthy and complex arguments over costs. Ben Robert Smith's supporter and, and former employer, the media billionaire Kerry Stokes, has been backing the case. And last December, the court ordered his private company, Australian Capital Equity, to pay the costs. Uh, that payment's on hold until this appeal is decided. The court's also also ordered Ben Robert Smith to pay $910,000 to the court as security for the costs of this appeal, which he'll be liable for should he lose. And Nick, the appeal hearing continues tomorrow and we're expecting it'll go through until the end of next week. Samantha Donovan there. Scientists believe marine heat waves are changing the microorganisms at the bottom of the food chain and that's bad news for the other sea life further up that rely on them. New research suggests the warming conditions can transform microorganism communities in the seas off Tasmania to more closely resemble those found along the coasts of balmier places like New South Wales or Queensland. Researchers are worried it might lead to permanent changes disrupting the entire ocean ecosystem. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Turtle. Oh, oh my God. Stand more turtle. Moana. Here at Hobart. This turtle sighting at Hobart's waterfront last week made headlines for its rarity. 
but scientists expect sightings like this one to become more common as waters get warmer. They're also expecting big changes at the other end of the food chain among communities of tiny microorganisms. Because it's when the waters warm above the highest ever water temperatures that you normally see that the, the organisms really um, change quite dramatically. Dr Mark Brown was the lead author on a new study which shows marine heat waves can alter microorganism communities and that can affect the wider ecosystem. A marine heat wave is when the water is warmer than its historical long-term average for more than five days in a row. In the past decade, there's been about 50 off Tasmania the most significant in 2015-16. They can be influenced by a range of factors, including large climate drivers like El Nino. And so we've got a long-term sort of baseline as to what the microbes are normally like around Tasmania this time of year. And then we looked at this big heatwave event and we saw that the organisms changed really profoundly to become more, more tropical. They were like organisms that we'd see up around Queensland, northern New South Wales, or even in the uh, East Australia current. The microorganisms became smaller, making it harder for krill and other animals to eat them. This impacts the, the type and the quality of food for sort of krill and then for fish, the fish that eat the krill kind of thing. So the effects can go cascading up the food chain. And there's another effect too, that the bigger cells, the bigger photosynthetic cells can be eaten and the poo from those organisms that eat them can sink really well into the into the deeper waters, which sequesters the carbon. But if, if the uh, major photosynthetic organisms are really, really small cells, then most of that carbon and energy just gets transformed by other microbes in the water and the carbon goes back out to the atmosphere. So it's kind of a two-pronged uh, problem. Lev Bodrossi is a research scientist with the CSIRO and also worked on the study, which relied on 12 years' worth of observations. He says marine heatwaves are increasingly common around the globe and particularly around southeastern Australia. In fact, there's one happening right now. The 2015-2016 heatwave was uh, the worst one on, on record and it has changed, has caused a significant shift in the marine biota. The, the current heatwave uh, around Tasmania is on, on track to match the one from 2015-2016 or even surpass it in uh, uh, severity. Dr Bedrossi says once those microorganisms change, the fish that usually rely on them can't get enough food, so they have to go elsewhere. So the significance of this finding is that we look at marine heat waves and consider them as a window into the future of the oceans where uh, marine heat waves will be more frequent, more uh, extensive, would last for longer and eventually the oceans will be warmer. Warmer oceans will change the marine life and we expect that uh, once waters around Tasmania are as warm as they are now around Sydney, the marine life here will change and uh, we'll, we'll, we expect to see a change in uh, fish stocks. The study will help to evaluate how the marine ecosystem might change with global warming. If we see what we saw in 2015-16 in uh, Tasmanian waters become the norm, our marine life around Tasmania will change and that change will, at least initially, will be a problem because species will disappear. When new species come in, it might take time. They might, So we might experience a kind of a troublesome um, transition period. Dr Lev Bredrossi ending that report from Alexandra Humphreys. 
And this is PM with me, Nick Grimm, and you can hear all our programs live or whenever you like on the ABC Listen app. There's outrage and calls for an inquiry, but Australian Federal Police, the AFP, is defending its handling of a counter-terrorism investigation involving a 13-year-old autistic boy who'd become fixated with the Islamic State terror group. A Victorian court threw out terror charges laid against the child following an undercover investigation by counter-terrorism officers that was launched when the boy's parents went to police seeking help. Jacqueline Breen reports. The boy, who's referred to simply as TC, is described in the court's ruling as having autism spectrum disorder and an IQ of just 71. After some troubling incidents at school and at home, including making threats to other students, watching IS videos and asking his mum to buy materials to make explosives, his parents took him to a Victorian police station asking for help. And while he was getting help from a therapeutic team, a second secret process was running in parallel that ended with him being arrested, charged and held in custody for months. It was a covert operation with undercover police talking to the boy online and encouraging him as he spoke about making a bomb or killing a police officer. Judge Leslie Fleming ruled that the charges linked to terrorism were to be thrown out. The rehabilitation of TC was doomed once the officer connected online, befriended TC and fed his fixation. The community would not expect law enforcement officers to encourage a 13 to 14-year-old child toward racial hatred, distress trust of police and violent extremism. Clearly, he was incredibly vulnerable. Aldil Salman is from the Islamic Council of Victoria. He's calling for a public inquiry into what happened. Why would a parent have any trust and confidence in the police after this? This is really the most egregious case of police misconduct. But it's not the only time this has happened. There is a pattern of behaviour that's been going back for many years. He isn't satisfied with an internal review, which, according to AFP Deputy Commissioner Ian McCartney, is already underway. And the decision to approve the control operation was due to the escalation of threat, the need to protect the community, but at the same time taking into account the age of the individual in what must I say a very challenging and complex matter. Deputy Commissioner McCartney noted that the operational decisions were taken jointly by the AFP, Victorian Police and ASIO. Under questioning from Green Senator David Shoebridge in a Senate committee hearing today, he said radicalising the boy wasn't the agency's intention. The person was on the the path to radicalisation long before we became involved, long before Victoria Police came involved. It was the AFP who recommended he become a sniper and a suicide bomber. It was the AFP who put that in his mind. This just seems like a case of things going badly wrong, being mishandled. Greg Barton is an expert on terrorism and violent extremism at Deakin University. The initial response of Victoria Police to work at uh, trying to help was what you'd hope to see uh, for AFP then to step in and use two undercover personas uh, in what in American law would be uh, argued was entrapment. Australia doesn't have that um, uh, legal framing. You know, that's really concerning. It just doesn't seem appropriate given the the, uh, profile of the child. This does seem to be a case where uh, AFP overstepped. He'd like to see more information about what happened released publicly by the law enforcement agencies. He notes the importance of community trust in their work especially given concern about the increased exposure of more children and young people to extremist material online since the pandemic. 
He says the good news is many young people in Australia have been successfully de-radicalised with the right support. I think it probably also reminds us that when you're dealing with something like uh, autism spectrum disorder and, in this case, low IQ, that you need particular expertise to come in because what was interpreted as a fixation because of likely radicalisation in this case just appears to have been a fixation, and not a healthy fixation. I mean, there should have been some intervention. That's not inappropriate. The parents were right to be concerned. But the undercover operative is posing... Um, as um, extremists and trying to draw this child out. That was not the appropriate response in this case. The federal government is yet to respond to a request for comment. Jacqueline Breen and Elizabeth Cramsey with that report. The federal government has taken what it hopes will be a big step forward for an electrified future, announcing proposed fuel efficiency standards for vehicles that burn fossil fuels. It's a move that should make EVs more price competitive. But petrol stations say another hurdle needs to be cleared to unleash their full potential. They want help from the government to install more fast charges on their forecourts. Elizabeth Cramsey has more. Bringing in new fuel efficiency standards is seen as a way of getting more environmentally friendly cars sold on Australian soil. In theory, they'll make it harder to sell gas guzzlers and easier for manufacturers to sell cars that either use less petrol or, better still, run on electricity. But if we get more EVs on Australian roads, will we have the infrastructure to charge them? The Australian Association of Convenience Stores, which has petrol stations among its members, says they'll need help from the government to install far more fast chargers. Its CEO, Theo Ficari, says the cost of installing them is simply too much for small operators. The challenge with fast charging equipment is the cost to upgrade the power uh, from the grid to actually power the store or the facilities at the store. And that cost can be uh, approximately $500,000. So for a small family business looking to, you know, embrace the change and start planning for the future, that type of investment where the majority of the money is going into a grid infrastructure, not the actual equipment of the charges themselves, we, just, we need help from the government to be able to support this transition. He's calling on the government to implement more fast charges, not the slow kind we've seen up until this point. A lot of the public charging equipment that's being put out uh, around the country is slow, can take hours, I'm talking four, five, six hours, uh, to get up to a reasonable amount of charge. And on top of that, there is, um, there's only one or two charges there. So bad luck if you've got someone there already and you've just got to wait or you have to find another location. You know, I think there's some challenges with regard to just putting charges anywhere versus putting charges that consumers are going to have access to amenities, it's going to be safe and there's going to be plenty of availability versus lining up. Dr Dia Adhikari-Smith is an expert on e-mobility at the University of Queensland. She says not everyone is able to charge their vehicle at home. Maybe they don't have a parking bay within their house or they live in a, like a multi-storey building where there's no charges there. So that's the reason people look for public fast charges because they don't have the amount of time where if you're charging at home, you can have your car parked overnight and charge it. So they're looking for fast chargers or if they're doing a long trip 
over the weekend going somewhere far and uh, they need these destination charging or charging on the way to make sure that they're able to complete uh, the driving range. And what is the government actually doing to get more fast charges out there? So we will need more more fast fast chargers on uh, highways. We will need more fast chargers on, say, fuel stations. And, of course, there will still be majority people charging their car overnight at home or charging their car um, at work, but we'll still need fast chargers on um, along the highway or at destinations like a supermarket or at uh, shopping malls. So the government needs to have incentives in place or some kind of benefits in place such that these shopping malls or these field stations um, or, of course, the highways are public fast chargers can come up and help people who are not able to charge at home or those who are able to charge at home but making longer trips and need charging on their way. Dr Dia Arakari-Smith from the University of Queensland ending that report by Elizabeth Cramsey. The past year in pop music has been dominated by American singer-songwriter Taylor Swift and now the Grammy Awards have done nothing to buck the trend. She's become the first person to win Album of the Year four times, surpassing artists such as Frank Sinatra, Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder. It was a night with plenty of wins for other female musicians too, including our very own Kylie Minogue. Isabel Masali reports. Two-time... Jumping around in a dressing gown before the official ceremony, Australia's Kylie Minogue celebrates news of her second ever Grammy Award. She took out Best Pop Dance Recording for worldwide hit Padam Padam. Later on the red carpet, she reflected on her first Grammy in 20 years. I'm very cognizant of this moment, that it's a great moment. Um, Maybe when you're younger, it's all happening so fast. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm emotional and I'm very proud. For Liz Dufresne, it's a recognition of an artist who's been underestimated for a lot of her career. She studies pop music at the University of Technology, Sydney, and has written a book about the star. We've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Kylie, I think. You know, when she first started, you know, 30 years ago, there was a bit of a, oh, she's come out of a of a soapy, does she really deserve to be there? Now she's a woman in her 50s who's, you know, winning and doing so well. And there's a, let's be face it, let's face it, there has been a little bit of sexism, I think, around her age and ageism, sort of saying, you know, nobody's complaining if, you know, if men win well into their 80s, but it's like, oh, she's still doing stuff. Isn't that interesting? Particularly in dance and in pop. It's, it's really great, you know, to see someone like her doing so well and her in particular. Well done, Kylie. Well done. Back in LA, female artists dominated the night. Song of the Year went to Billie Eilish for What Was I Made For, a ballad for the Barbie movie soundtrack. Miley Cyrus won her first Grammy for Best Solo Pop Performance along with Record of the Year for Flowers. And the big album of the year may have come as no surprise to her biggest fans. And the Grammy goes to... Taylor Swift. The win for the album Midnight's makes Taylor Swift the only artist to have won the prestigious category four times in their career. All I want to do is keep doing this, so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. 
to do what I love so much. Mind blown. Thank you so much. She also used an earlier win to announce another album release for April. RMIT University's Kate Patterson, who's researching Taylor Swift, says the award is a significant achievement. 40% of her catalogue is now an album of the year winner, which is just, I, I think, pretty crazy, almost half of her albums. But I think the other really important thing with Taylor is that, yes, she's done so much so far, but she is still really young. She's just announced a new album. She's constantly producing more. So I think this could only be the beginning of what we'll see in terms of her as a legacy act. But the awards show wasn't without controversy. Rapper and record producer Jay-Z won the Global Impact Award and used his speech to take aim at the Grammys for overlooking his wife Beyonce in previous years. I don't want to embarrass this young lady, but she has more Grammys than everyone and never won album of the year. So even by your own metrics, that doesn't work. Some of you, some of you going to go home tonight and feel like you've been robbed. Some of you may get robbed. Some of you don't belong in the category. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that was it. No, when I get nervous, I tell the truth. Of course, the night had plenty of live performances, including appearances from Billy Joel and Tracy Chapman, along with tributes. And at the age of 80, Joni Mitchell took to the Grammy stage for the first time. After surviving a brain aneurysm in 2015, she since learned to walk and talk again, let alone sing. Her moving performance met with a standing ovation from the crowd. I really don't know life at all. A fine performance by Joni Mitchell there, ending that report from Isabel Masali. And that is PM for another night. Thanks for joining me and the rest of the PM team. I'm Nick Grimm. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Catch you later. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. When the Reserve Bank board members meet for the first time this year, they might be patting each other on the back. Inflation has come right down to a two-year low, meaning they won't need to raise interest rates again. Today, ABC TV's finance expert, Alan Kohler, on what needs to happen now for rates to start falling. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.